Welcome to the December 2nd, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we'll review results of a randomized Phase 2 study demonstrating that inhibition of ROC2 with belumosidil is well-tolerated and effective in patients with steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease. Next, we'll review the work of researchers who have uncovered new insights into the immunopathogenesis of vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. We'll close with a report of a prospective longitudinal analysis that elucidates the dynamics of mutated hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells during therapy with interferon alpha in patients with BCR-ABL1-negative myeloproliferative neoplasms. The first article is entitled, Belumosidil for Chronic Graft-Versus-Host Disease After Two or More Prior Lines of Therapy, The Rockstar Study, by Corey Cutler of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Boston, and co-authors. In this randomized Phase two study, targeting ROC2 with belumosidil was well-tolerated and yielded clinically meaningful responses in patients with steroid refractory chronic GVHD. Chronic GVHD is a leading cause of morbidity, late non-relapse mortality, and reduced quality of life following allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant, or HCT. Chronic GVHD is very common, affecting up to 70% of transplant recipients, and approximately 40% of cases are categorized as severe. For patients with moderate to severe chronic GVHD, the standard first-line treatment approach is systemic corticosteroids, given alone, or with serolimus, or a calcineurin inhibitor. Unfortunately, the majority of patients, 70% or more, need subsequent lines of therapy due to a lack of efficacy or toxicities associated with first-line treatment. The available treatments for steroid refractory chronic GVHD are limited and associated with variable response rates. To address this need, several targeted approaches to treatment have recently been studied, including belumosidil, an oral inhibitor of Rho-associated coiled-coil-containing protein kinase 2, or ROC2. ROC2 inhibition downregulates pro-inflammatory responses by decreasing phosphorylation of signal transducer and activator of transcription 3, or STAT3, thereby decreasing type 17 helper T-cells. In addition, belumosidil activates STAT5 signaling and thereby restores immune homeostasis by increasing regulatory T-cells, or Tregs, and also inhibits several pathways that induce fibrosis. In a previous Phase 2A dose-finding study, including patients with chronic GVHD who had failed one to three prior lines of treatment, belumosidil demonstrated an overall response rate of 65%. That encouraging result prompted investigators to design and conduct Rockstar, a pivotal Phase II registration study designed to evaluate the safety and efficacy of either one or two daily doses of belumosidil in transplant recipients aged 12 or older who had persistent manifestations of chronic GVHD after two to five prior lines of systemic therapy. Patients were randomly allocated to receive belumosidil 200 mg either once or twice daily, administered orally. Treatment continued until progression of chronic GVHD or unacceptable toxicity. Corticosteroid therapy could be tapered after two or more weeks of belumosidil treatment, at the discretion of investigators. The primary endpoint was best overall response rate. 
A total of 132 patients were enrolled. The median age at enrollment was 56 years. Chronic GVHD was moderate in 31% of patients and severe in 67%. 52% had involvement of four or more organs. The overall response rate was 74% in the belumosidil single daily dose of 200 mg arm, and similarly 77% in the 200 mg twice daily arm. Efficacy was consistent regardless of prior targeted therapies, with an overall response rate of 68% in patients who had previously received ruxolitinib and 74% for those who had previously received ibrutinib. Reported by affected organ, best overall response rates were 71% for joints and fascia, 69% for lower GI tract, 55% for mouth, 52% for upper GI tract, 45% for esophagus, 42% for eyes, 39% for liver, 37% for skin, and 26% for lung involvement by GVHD. Responses were relatively rapid, with a median time to response of five weeks. The great majority of responses, 91%, occurred within six months of starting treatment. The median duration of response was 54 weeks, with 44% of patients remaining on therapy for at least one year, as of this report. Low rates of non-relapse mortality and relapse were reported at 7% and 3%, respectively. 65% of patients were able to reduce their corticosteroid dose during belumosidil treatment, with 21% discontinuing corticosteroids altogether. Similar proportions of patients were able to discontinue treatment with calcineurin inhibitors, serolimus, and mycophenolate mofetil. Scores on the Lee symptom scale improved, suggesting a reduction in symptom burden among patients in this study. Treatment was well-tolerated, with a median relative dose intensity of 99.7%. Adverse events were consistent with what would be expected among patients with chronic GVHD receiving corticosteroids and immunosuppressants, according to investigators. Possible drug-related adverse events led to discontinuation in 16 patients, or 12%. The most common grade 3 or 4 adverse events were pneumonia in 8%, hypertension in 6%, and hyperglycemia in 5%. In an accompanying commentary, Jorg P. Halter of University Hospital Basel, Switzerland, said belumosidil represents a new kind of therapeutic strategy for chronic GVHD that targets both immune dysregulation and fibrosis via inhibition of ROC2. Halter said ongoing surveillance data is needed to better characterize the safety profile of belumosidil over time. Moreover, the lack of clinically significant differences in safety and efficacy between the two doses of belumosidil suggests the potential for further exploration of the minimal effective dose. Of note, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently approved belumosidil for adult and pediatric patients 12 years and older with chronic GVHD and failure of at least two prior lines of systemic therapy. Belumosidil therefore joins ibrutinib and ruxolitinib as another recent addition to the therapeutic armamentarium for challenging cases of chronic GVHD. The availability of several treatment choices raises new questions, such as which therapy to use and when. It will be important to determine which drugs are most beneficial in different disease profiles or at different time points in the disease course, and more research is needed to make these determinations. Furthermore, it's possible that by combining the therapies, bypass effects in the dysregulated immune system could be avoided. 
Taken together, results of the Rockstar study demonstrate the promising efficacy and favorable safety profile of belumosidil in patients with steroid refractory chronic GVHD. Responses to treatment were sustained and clinically meaningful, regardless of chronic GVHD severity, number of organs involved, or response to prior therapy. Next, let's turn to an article entitled Insights in Chadox-1 and COVID-19 Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombotic Thrombocytopenia, or VIT. The first author is Andreas Greiniger of University Medicine Greifswald in Greifswald, Germany. In this study, Greiniger and co-authors bring together results of imaging studies, mouse models, and analysis of patient samples to support a two-step mechanism of VIT-driven thrombosis. We know that vaccination against severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2, is critical to combat the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Among the available vaccines are a few that utilize recombinant adenovirus vectors that encode the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. These include the Janssen ad 26 cov 2 s vaccine and the AstraZeneca CHADOX-1N COVID-19 vaccine. In ongoing safety surveillance studies, the adenovirus-based vaccines have been associated with rare reports of thrombocytopenia plus thrombosis that is often in unusual sites, including the cerebral venous sinus and splanchnic veins. This syndrome, which is typically observed within one to two weeks of vaccination, has been called VIT, or vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Patients with VIT have high levels of antibodies that recognize platelet factor 4, or PF4. These anti-PF4 antibodies activate platelets in a manner similar to what occurs in patients with autoimmune heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis. However, much about VIT pathophysiology remains to be elucidated. Relatively little is known about how anti-PF4 antibodies are triggered, the danger signals that prime immune reactions, and underlying pro-thrombotic mechanisms. In the present research article in Blood, Greiniger and colleagues used 3D super-resolution microscopy to find complexes that formed between the adenovirus-derived hexon protein and platelets, as well as adenovirus particles and PF4. Complexes of vaccine particles and PF4 were recognized by VIT patient-derived anti-PF4 immunoglobulin, which bound to them on platelet surfaces. Using proteomics, investigators found that about half the protein content of the vaccine was of human origin, likely from the T-Rex HEC-293 cells used in vaccine manufacturing. They also investigated EDTA, a vaccine constituent, in a mouse model. Intradermally injected alone or as part of the vaccine, EDTA triggered vascular leakage in mice, which led to systemic dissemination of vaccine components known to stimulate immune responses. Of note, VIT patient anti-PF4 antibodies potently activated platelets and neutrophils in the presence of PF4. The stimulated platelet aggregation was completely inhibited via FC-gamma-R2A receptor blockade using an anti-CD32 antibody. The anti-PF4 antibodies from VIT patients also stimulated granulocytes to release neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, which are known to promote coagulation in the setting of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Biomarkers of pro-coagulant NETs were observed in VIT patient serum, and immunohistochemistry revealed abundant NETs seen in cerebral vein thrombi from VIT patients. 
Together, investigators said these data support a two-step mechanism underlying VIT similar to the pathogenesis of autoimmune heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. In step one, right after vaccination, vaccine components and PF4 form pro-inflammatory complexes in blood vessels, stimulating production of pathologic anti-PF4 antibodies. In step two, which occurs five to 20 days after vaccination, anti-PF4 antibodies activate platelets in a PF4 and polyanion-dependent manner, leading to deposition of thrombi in atypical vascular beds. In a related commentary published in Blood, authors Jeffrey R. Stritch and Yojendra Kanthi from the NIH said these findings provide detailed insight into the pathogenesis of VIT and why it is associated only with adenoviral vector-based SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, as opposed to the mRNA-based vaccines. However, many questions remain. For example, do the human proteins in the vaccine provoke an immune response? And is there overlap between the anti-PF4 antibody production that drives thrombosis in VIT and autoantibodies that are associated with acute COVID-19 infection or other critical illnesses? One big unanswered question is how to treat VIT. In the commentary, Stritch and Kanthi say the study results bring to mind fostamatinib, the sick inhibitor used in the treatment of chronic immune thrombocytopenia. In particular, they pointed to the FC-gamma-R2A-dependent signaling mechanism that leads to platelet activation in VIT. In ex vivo COVID-19 studies, fostamatinib inhibits the activation of FC receptor by antigen-antibody complexes, providing a rationale for looking at fostamatinib as a potential treatment for VIT. Altogether, the data from Greinecker and colleagues provide new insights in how the CHADOX1 and COVID-19 vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 precipitates immune responses. The immune responses stimulate production of pathogenic anti-PF4 antibodies that in turn trigger prothrombotic reactions downstream. The results of these investigations may have important implications for improved patient safety in the future development of adenoviral vector vaccines. The final article is entitled, Inferring the Dynamics of Mutated Hematopoietic Stem and Progenitor Cells Induced by Interferon Alpha in Myeloproliferative Neoplasms. The first author is Matthew Mosca of Gustave Roussy, Villejuif, France. In this article, Mosca and co-authors report a prospective longitudinal analysis that identifies differential molecular responses according to underlying driver mutation type and dosage of interferon alpha. For decades, interferon alpha has been used to treat hematologic malignancies. Before the introduction of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, interferon alpha was the agent of choice in a subset of patients with BCR-ABL1-positive chronic myeloid leukemia. Interferon alpha, and especially pegylated interferon alpha, has also been shown to induce hematologic responses in patients with essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and some early cases of myelofibrosis. In non-CML-MPN patients, the disease is primarily associated with gain-of-function somatic mutations in genes encoding JAK2, calreticulin, or CalR, or the thrombopoietin receptor gene, termed MPL. Interferon alpha, in contrast to JAK inhibitors or cytoreductive therapies, has been shown to decrease the JAK2V617F variant allele frequency in the majority of patients, while its impact on mutant CalR or MPL gene variant allele frequency is less clear. 
What factors impact the long-term molecular response rates associated with interferon alpha treatment in non-CML-MPN have remained largely unknown. Now, Mosca and colleagues have provided results of a longitudinal analysis of the long-term dynamics of the JAK2V617F mutation, mutant CALR, and mutant MPL in the hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells of patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms treated with interferon alpha. They found that driver mutation type, JAK2V617F homozygosity, and interferon alpha dose were all independent predictors of response. This prospective observational study included 48 patients with essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, or myelofibrosis, who were followed for more than five years. Several times each year, investigators would measure the clonal architecture of early and late hematopoietic progenitor cells, yielding nearly 85,000 measurements. They also measured global variant allele frequency in mature cells for a total of about 400 measurements. All patients in the study had JAK2V617F, CALR, or MPL mutations and were followed for at least three months after starting treatment with pegylated interferon alpha. 32 patients had JAK2V617F mutation, 12 had CALR mutations, and 2 had mutant MPL. The remaining two had a combination of mutations. The median age before starting treatment was 53 years, and the median dose of pegylated interferon alpha was 71 micrograms per week. Hematological responses were seen in 78% of JAK2V617F mutant cases and 72% of CALR mutant cases, as well as in both of the MPL mutant cases. Investigators found that progenitor cells harboring homozygous mutant JAK2V617F cells were more susceptible to interferon alpha as compared to heterozygous JAK2V617F cells. This effect was apparent starting around day 600 of treatment. Moreover, interferon alpha targeted JAK2V617F progenitors faster at higher doses. By contrast, mutant CALR progenitors were on average less responsive. Interestingly, higher dosages of interferon alpha correlated with poor hematopoietic stem cell response in the CALR mutant population. However, CALR type 2 mutant progenitor cells were more effectively targeted by interferon alpha than CALR type 1 cells. Mosca and colleagues also report the results of a mathematical modeling-based approach, which supports the hypothesis that interferon alpha works by inducing MPN stem cells to enter the cell cycle and differentiate leading to clonal exhaustion. In a blood commentary, author John Moscarinas said this study is elegant work that dissects the differential effects of interferon alpha on the hematopoietic cell compartments and highlights the influence of MPN driver mutations on clonal dynamics. Moscarinas, who is with the Tisch Cancer Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, said prospective studies would be needed to validate the molecular observations of the study before the observations could be integrated into routine patient care. The future of MPN therapy, according to Moscarinas, includes earlier treatments and the use of multi-agent regimens, such as interferon alpha combined with a JAK inhibitor for the treatment of polycythemia vera. It's possible that future treatment selection and delivery in MPNs could be molecularly driven, Moscarinas said. But until molecular determinants of clinical outcomes are prospectively validated, he concluded, interferon alpha should be used, quote, in the appropriate clinical settings, irrespective of MPN genotype, and with the primary intention of thrombosis reduction. Taken together, 
Findings of the study by Mosca and colleagues suggest that the molecular efficacy of interferon alpha and MPNs depends on the dosage of treatment and the type of driver mutation. It also suggests that titrating to the maximum tolerated dose of interferon alpha would be most likely to achieve reduction in JAK2V617F HSCs and consequently to result in hematologic response. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.